You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hello, and welcome to Sustainably Geeky, episode 40. Today, I am joined by Chris, one of our co-hosts, and our, our special guest today is Susana Cruz. Um, she is the founder of Chicana in Nature. She was born and raised in Oak Cliff, right outside of Dallas, and has ventured out into the natural world, taught outdoor education, worked and volunteered for camps, and wants others to experience similar things. Her organization's mission is to create opportunities for BIPOC communities to learn about science and nature, teach and connect those who have no idea where to start, and promote enjoyment of the outdoors. She does this using the green spaces available to anyone in their own neighborhoods and partners with mutual aid groups, nonprofit organizations, schools, the city of Dallas, and companies to bring further awareness, education, and activities to help more people enjoy the outdoors. So thank you for joining us today. And um, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion in the outdoors. Uh, So I thought uh, Susana would be a great guest to talk about that since she's kind of founded an organization centered around this. Um, but before we get into that, can you kind of tell us about your journey on founding Chicana in Nature and why you decided on this concept? Sure. So, uh, Jennifer, it's so great that thank you all for having me on this. And uh, thank you, Chris. But Jennifer and I got to meet while I was working in the process of like in a camp. So it's fantastic to be able to reconnect on that level. But um, in that and saying that, like, I was also one of the only people of color that was working for that camp at that time. And that happened a lot. And it's been a journey over the last, like, couple of decades of working, not only in camps, but also in, you know, criminal justice and social services, where I was stepping into being the only person of color a lot. So last year, when I was on this path of being on furlough, as many people were, and then also being laid off. During my furlough, I was going through a lot of soul searching and and I had a feeling that the layoff was going to happen. So I decided to kind of like tap in, do a lot of nature hikes, lots and lots. And I had a conversation with somebody one night that prompted me to really look in even further. And it had to do with um, someone that was doing some mansplaining about racial profiling and also mansplaining about, uh, which is which is funny because I, I also know that I could have said stop at any moment, but I did not. I chose not to. Then tried to mansplain about psychology because we were talking about a movie that had to do with like some psychology things. And then... <laughs> They made me feel very sexualized when I pronounce Spanish words in Spanish properly because I do that because my family was having dealt with corporal punishment because they grew up here in Texas, like in the 60s. And during that time, they were still not allowed to speak Spanish in schools and were having, or were getting consequences for it and pretty brutally too. So our family really, like I do it for my family. I do it because I can. So I had to, I left that conversation just very irked and decided that like why and uh, why didn't I not say something? Like I I silenced myself. I made myself very small in that moment to not just open up and then not say like yo first off like 
I have all this background. And then secondly, like as a person of color, I'm gonna need you if you're lacking melanin to please stop trying to explain things to me that I fully understand. Um, but I didn't do that. So then I wound up walking away, trying to just like figure out what's going on with me and having a lot of learning from that because I would, I generally would be, you know, pushing, suppressing myself because I didn't want to make waves. Or if I had feelings for somebody, then I wouldn't do that. And it was, it's a pattern of behavior that I had done. So then I did some traveling after that conversation. And I got on a mountain with some homies that happened to be people of color too. And doing it unsuccessfully, we were about a, a mile up from the summit. And nobody tells Texans that, you know, that elevation is a real thing. Like it's really <laughs> gonna affect you. And here we I don't was, have like, that much of it here, right? <laughs> we don't. Like the highest here in Dallas is like a hundred feet. Mm-hmm. I'm over here like thousands of feet going, okay, I'm gonna be fine because this is only four miles. No, 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 no. It's terrible. And I wrote a top ten list after that hike, just like as a satire, just like how to make it up a mountain. And it was really funny. And I sent it out to a lot of the homies and they're like, and the, the person that I wound up having that conversation with that really kind of like was the catalyst for things, this person told me, you should send that to a nature magazine. And I went, yo, you're right. That was really good writing. Like, I, of course, so I start researching and there are hardly any women being represented at all. And of course, like almost zero people of color being represented in me. So I'm like, I'm not going to send this information, my, like, you know, my, you know, intellectual property to someone that's not going to get it or really appreciate it. So I'm like, you know what, what do I need to do in order to like, why are they not marketing us? We don't go out. Why are we not going out? And figuring out the, the steps as to why we weren't. I mean, I knew but I also need to be like, okay, so how can I remedy that? So the way that I was, I figured that out that I needed to remedy it was to make sure that there were opportunities within my community to do so. And Oak Cliff happens to be one of uh, the lower socioeconomic status neighborhoods in Dallas. And we are, it originally Oak Cliff started out as a resort town for people in Dallas, like downtown area proper to come over, hang out at these like Lake Cliff Park, which was a resort at the time. Now it it changed after white flight started like white flight happened and then started to end like is it ending in the 80s these neighborhoods that were south of Dallas downtown Dallas were becoming like BIPOC communities. I happened to grow up in that BIPOC community. Can you um, explain to our listeners what that term means in case they're not familiar? Yeah. So BIPOC, and I've had to explain a, a few times because that people go, what's BIPOC? And you know, that's, if you don't know, you don't know. So I'm going to say it. So it's Black Indigenous People of Color. And we're really covering like all marginalized groups. And, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that we're, we're being seen. We're, we're going out into nature because I, on these travels, again, being one of the only ones on the, on the mountain that was a person of color. The, and we were three deep on that one, you know? And we're still looking around going like, there's nobody else that looks like us. Okay, 
So let's solve the problem. Let's start within our neighborhood, figure out how can I get this to happen? And our people really want to protect each other. So the best way for me to do that is to be someone who looks like you, who looks like them, to take them on places because I am knowledgeable. I have had this background. So we're going to get out on the trails and it doesn't hurt that I'm a snake wrangler. So. Well, that's such an inspiring story because I think a lot of people can relate to what you said about um, when somebody is talking at you about things that you feel intimidated by, you just shrink down and you may not respond. Or I think as women, especially, we're very much people pleasers and we don't want to, um, we don't want to rock the boat or we don't know how to respond because, you know, it's a, it's a very male centric society. So we just feel like, well, this is the way it is and we can't make a difference. But I think, um, the fact that you came back from that and said, you know what, no, this isn't right. And I'm going to start doing something about it. Um, will help other people maybe, you know, realize they can do the same thing. Cause I've been in those situations too, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, that's just how it is. You know, a guy grabs your, or smacks your butt or puts his arm around you or makes some racist comment. And you just think, well, what am I going to say? What, what difference is that going to make? But I definitely think um, it all starts with, you know, one conversation and then you can kind of build that confidence and, and see it grow into something like what you've done. So props to you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I love that you, you kind of took it on yourself to say, I'm going to represent, you know, this community. I'm going to show folks that, um, that the outdoors is for everybody. And I, and I think at least what I've heard um, is that a lot of the reason there's probably not as much representation is because people don't see people that look like them, like you said. Um, so how is your organization kind of tackling that and, and making folks more comfortable with, with being in nature? So when I am the leader, and as a Latina, like person in, like, in the Latinx community, that, it's, that in itself just shows people that, hey, there is somebody out there. Um, because the, the natural world and the outdoor world is very cis male driven. And for anybody that doesn't know cis, that means heterosexual, y'all. Like, right? <laughs> so just know that that's what's happening. And it's these, these, and it's a lot. Like, it ha like I worked in predominantly in camps where there were a lot of men that were white. Outdoor education is mostly white male. And you know, one of the camps that I was at for the longest, I was the only minority that was on, you know, person of color that was on our staff. That's including kitchen and cleaning staff. That's, that's you know, interesting that that happened. So in our community, I'm also making sure that we're creating, you know, these, you know, hikes that are happening maybe once or twice a month. And then also having day trips for adults that they saw that I was you know, having a day camp and wanted, they've never had that experience. So they were like, yo, I, want, I really would love to experience this. So I was like, you know what, let's create it because I can. And then also doing survival skills training. After our winter storm that we had here in Dallas, and of course, like y'all were affected as well, um, I decided to open up and have a few weekends where a few days where we were doing survival training. So teaching people how to filter water, teaching them how to start a fire appropriately and to not have carbon monoxide poisoning, 
teaching them as well the proactive things that you can have before you wind up in these situations. And then like, what do you do if you don't have certain, you know, certain resources? Let's look at the resources that you might have in your house. So I also tell people how to, you know, start wet fires using Cheetos, hot Cheetos with that, because, you know, it just felt appropriate. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned carbon monoxide poisoning because during Snowvid, which is, if you haven't heard um, the big winter storm that hit Texas in February, um, there were people lighting up grills inside the house, you know, and to us, it's just common sense. Like you don't do that. You have no ventilation. You're going to set the house on fire, et cetera, et cetera. But people don't know not to do these things. And, you know, maybe you could, you can put the blame on them. Like, you know, you should know that, but I guess if you've never, um, you know, cooked on anything but a stove before or, you know, a microwave or whatever, you wouldn't think about that kind of stuff. So survival skills are very, very important and um, would have helped, I think, a lot of folks <laughs> during that Extremely. time. Extremely. Yeah, we were, I mean, you, you heard about it, uh, Jennifer, how many deaths that were happening, how many house fires were happening. A lot of these are happening in lower income houses because this information is not always given. This information is also stuff that I learned only because I worked in this field. I also, you know, was a part of burn camp. And I was speaking about it earlier before everything is that I work, I volunteer for a burn camp and we have burn survivors from anywhere from ages and we've had them from ages five to 18 and from all different types of fires. Fire does fire affects everybody. And while we were like doing, while we were in our winter storm, I even hit like Instagram live answering questions because people were reaching out going like, hey, did you see that terracotta life hack? A terracotta pot thing so I can make a space heater. I go, y'all remember the space heaters? It's one of the number one reasons we have house fires in the winter, right? Like, no, let me remind you. Um, or like other ways for them to like, please, your garage has an emergency <laughs> you know, string that will open up. So you're not sitting in your garage with your car on and your children die and you die because you're trying to because go Because your on. electricity doesn't work and you don't know how to pull a string. <laughs> right. There's so many things, right? So it's like, what we feel are first world problems, what we feel are like, it should be something that is common sense. It wasn't, and I'm having to answer, I was answering questions. And also letting people know like, hey, you know, yeah, if you're in a different part of the country or somewhere else and you're judging the mess out of us, also understand who is getting affected by it. It's right. not the people that have that knowledge, it's the people that don't, nor do we have the resources. Yeah, we don't know to carry kitty litter in our car when we're driving or put you know, chains on our wheels because we don't deal with that down here, but um, that's a whole other conversation about climate change and why weather patterns are shifting, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's awesome that you guys also do survival training. And mm -hmm. like you said, it, it unfortunately, it seems like when these extreme weather events happen, they do affect communities of color, low-income communities at higher rates. Um, so it is extremely important to reach out to those communities and um, you know try to just give basic knowledge and, and ask well what do you want to know um, or what what do you want to do you know when it comes to outdoor activities and things like that mm -hmm. yep and we are 
when I say we, I mean me, because it's only me. I mean, I have a social media director who does help out sometimes, but she's also a student activist and does a lot of things with our mutual aid uh, partners that we have. So I'm taking on a lot because I can, and it's, um, it's great to educate, like, because we're being proactive, not just for adults, but also for the kids, um, making sure that they're understanding, like, what needs to happen in their communities. Edible foraging is another thing that we, or that I really teach on, and that edible foraging within their own backyard. So these are, like, we have a lot of native plants here in, like, here in Dallas alone that we can just scrounge around and, and find and have a snack, and every time I go on a trail and teaching people these things, they're like, man, I wish I would have known that like a long time ago. Or, you know, this is, I wish I would have known that during snowpocalypse. Like, yeah, because like, <laughs> things were still out there. They just had snow all over them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people were melting ice or snow for, not for drinking, but for their toilets and things like that when they didn't have running water. So you got to get creative with that kind of stuff. And it's, it's interesting how um, humans can adapt to things, you know, if, if they just have a little bit of knowledge on what to do. So Chris is over here laughing at us probably because up in Canada land, they're used to the snow. But again, it's all about perspective where you live and what your infrastructure is. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, it was it was just more baffling that it happened in the first place and that it was so yeah widespread and it was just a complete shutdown mm -hmm. um so it was scary to watch from here because of course we have snow plows and snow tires and appropriate infrastructure and then watching it happen in a place that it's never we've had it happen the reverse here in bc where we've had you know the record high was 49.7 degrees celsius in bc you make me have to do math Chris. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well over 100. I don't know in Fahrenheit. Um, but it's it, because there's no infrastructure for that. We don't have air conditioning. We just got air conditioning last year. And that's because we moved. Um, so yeah. we're not set up for air conditioning. We're not set up for that kind of heat. And it's the heat is moving our way. It probably won't hit Ontario like it did out west. But yeah, we're not a, we're not set up for that. So 120 Fahrenheit. There you go. <laughs> With a humidex. That's, that's high yeah. in Texas. So yeah, like it was, it was, that's never, ever, ever happened here. And it's, it, yeah, the infrastructure just wasn't there to be able to handle all of that. And people were dying. And there was articles of people surviving by putting frozen blankets and towels on themselves just to try to keep cool. Yeah. Well, Chris, I know you had a, a few questions um, for Susanna, if you want to jump in. Sure. Um, I love, love, love that you do day camps for kids. That just makes me so happy because I'm a camp kid. I started going to camp when I was 11. And the big part was just to be comfortable in the outdoors, to know that the it wasn't scary. There's no, you know, nothing frightening out there, that it's just a very wonderful, comfortable place. And I feel like the younger you know that, the more brave you are to do all of those awesome things that you were talking about. So I think it's just awesome. What made you decide to do summer, uh, to do day camps like that? So I have been, like I spoke earlier about being in the camping world and I've been in the camping world since the nineties, uh, working for some camps that, uh, that was me working, not even going. Like it was, uh, I, I went to a tennis camp one time when I was younger, uh, because like I was 
and it was it, when I say younger, I mean like I was 18 years old at that time, going to one week of of tennis camp, which is work. That's not you going out to be in nature. That's you being on the court and they're drilling you and getting ready for competition. So I, and then another day camp that I was part of as a kid was a science camp. And I got that experience because I was a kid that their parents didn't want them to go to day camp because they didn't know anybody. Again, like the BIPOC community, if they're not aware of who it is that you're sending your kids to, you're less likely to be a part of that. So my parents were teachers though, and they were like, have fun, Susana, you know, get out there. I'm like, yes. So I went and I was a part of that for a few weeks. Um, But for me to like, I noticed that while I was working in camp, where we had, we might've had some diversity, some in certain camps. We had some diversity in our like staff. We didn't necessarily always have that diversity with our campers because camp is generally expensive for families to send their kids to. And there are generations of families, like depending on what camp you went to, many camps have generations that have gone. So you've got your great grandparents who went, grandparents. The more in the Northeast, you wind up with like, you know, everybody in their, like in their lineage since somebody hit Plymouth going to a camp, you know? I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean? So there's, it's very elitist at times. And there have been people who have told me like, I didn't experience that. Cool, I'm glad you didn't experience that. But that happens a lot. If we really look at all of it, like over, over the course of like the United States and even in other countries too, with camps. I've been a volunteer uh, for American Camp Association for a while and including in this region in Vectoma, I was the co-chair for our conference. And I am going to be the first Latina keynote speaker for um, the Tacoma Region Conference that's coming up in 2022. That tells you anything, right? Um, and I wanted to make sure that kids that, like I said, were working there, the kids were not always diverse. And when I did have kids that were diverse because their school system decided that it was going to be you know, it is a huge investment to make sure that your kids go and have this experience, that hands-on learning that happens um, because nature is an equalizer. It doesn't matter what color you are out there. Danger is danger. Uh, also, nature is going to do its thing. Whether you're, you know, as, as Felicity, who was one of my campers last week, that if you're a peach person or if you're a brown person, so, you know, like, that's, it's always going to be there. And we all have our special niches, you know, that role that we play. And so I wanted to make sure that I was giving this to my community. This is something that like, what is affordable, they're getting more one-on-one, you know, experience with somebody who is extremely experienced. And I can adapt to everything because I've been working in camps for people with special needs and chronic illness, all kinds of special interest camps, and I have my background in social services and professional counseling. So it just aligned. Uh, eventually, if things continue to grow, clearly I'm gonna not be the only person that's gonna be doing this. But these kids, the first week, we did a survival camp. And our last activity that we did was outdoor cooking. Um, it was it was great. Like the 14 year old that was doing it, cause I, I catered to um, my age range 
well, since I made an exception last week, is now five to 17. <laughs> and we were, you know, we had the 14 year old made ramen and she made some bomb ramen. I was like, wow, <laughs> might want to have you do my meal prep. This is wonderful. Um, and then of course, like they learned how to build a fire. They learned how to keep that fire maintained so that it, they could cook on it. We went on a hike every single morning so that they could learn about like things that we have to eat. We talked about water filtration. We talked about the animals that are around us, even insects that they could utilize. Last week, we focused, hyper-focused on foraging, um, learning about community gardens and the effects of what insects do for that. And also being able to um, show them like food to table things because we don't always have that. So they're, you know, getting that knowledge of like, this is what it looks like. I'm so sorry, my phone is deciding to ring. I'm at the decline. I'm so sorry, we're recording. Um, so it was, um, we would spend a lot of time looking at, we went to the Arboretum. We were at 10th Street Garden, which is a garden that is, that is here in Oak Cliff. It's also made by Oak Cliff Fitchie Project. That's one of the mutual aid groups that is a partner with us, with Chicana Nature and huge sponsor of the camp. So we were only trying to get funding for two kids this summer that their parents were like, hey, I really want my kids to be a part of your program. We have now gotten funding for 13 kids to serve 13 kids and it was the community and our partners, Oak Cliff Veggie Project and Feed the People who stepped up to make this opportunity happen for them. And I, you know, I'm, I'm always like floored that this even happened because like, I, all I did was put on masks and the families are like, Susanna, you did such a great job. And I'm like, no, the community did it. Like I, I just happened to be a facilitator and a catalyst, but they're the ones who you know came through. So when we have people that have not had experiences because of resources, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, diversity being like we have people that look alike or look similar to each other in a mixture of, sure, okay, we can get there, maybe, but we can't do that without that equity, without being able to put people in the same spaces. So when I chose to take the kids to Texas Discovery Garden, I chose to take the kids to the Arboretum, they weren't always seeing people that were diverse other than the staff members. So we were clearly taking up some space on, and we talked about, we will process that too. Yeah, I think it's very important that you point out that diversity and inclusion um, and equity includes a lot of things, not just um, your race or ethnicity, but also ability. Like you said, you, you have camps for all abilities kids, and I know you have a background in that um, when you were in Colleen as well and um, income, age, sex, like a lot of barriers or, or perceived barriers um, for people that um, it's really important that you address if you if you want to make the outdoors accessible to everybody. So that's great mm -hmm. that you're kind of looking at that holistically. If we're not, then we're not, you know, never going to solve a problem. And very solution-based when it comes to figuring things out. I feel like, and a friend of mine, uh, my best friend, and I talk about like when we have a problem personally, we give each other 
some space to be able to talk about that. If it's a short problem, like that we have, we give each other time to vent, like, is this a five minute or like 15 or 20? Sometimes it's gonna take a lot more than that for, you know, like, and then we figure out like, what are the solutions after that? How can we solve this so that it doesn't happen again? Just like, how do I solve the problem? You know, when I had that conversation to like, make sure that I'm heard, make sure that that doesn't happen to another person again by that person. Because I know deep down, most people don't want to, most people don't want to hurt each other. And there are people that are willing to listen to some of these things like about how do we solve the problem with equity and making sure that people are included in these programs. But if, if the resources aren't there or people aren't listening because they don't know how to listen to, to the way that some people in the BIPOC community project, which we get a lot of flack for when we're passionate to sound angry or, you know, we're, we're labeled as angry or we're labeled as like, you know, wow, they're really, you know, they're hot tempered. They've got like, you know, they've got a quick fuse and you're going like, no, that's just passion. That's just the way that we express ourselves. But if people don't understand it because that's not what they've seen or experienced, then we also have to remember that too. And if I'm in a position of leadership, I want to make sure that I'm not yelling, that I'm not, that I'm making, that I'm making myself, myself even accessible for people that are not of color to come and talk to me about it. Yeah, and you shouldn't have to do that much work just to be heard, but unfortunately, um, I guess if that's the most effective way to break through right now, and then hopefully that will shift the conversation for later generations. Right, and I understand, like, and I want everybody to know, like, I this is not my responsibility. It's not. Um, I don't feel like it is. I don't feel like I'm trying to be some savior. I don't have some savior complex. I just know that if I say be the change, if I say I'm good solutions oriented, and I need to be a part of that solution, and sometimes, many times, it's going to incorporate hard conversations that other people don't have the patience to have. And if I have the patience to do it, then okay, like, we'll sit down, we'll have a conversation about it, you know? Yeah. Well, let's um, kind of expand on this topic. Um, I think a lot of what we're talking about, it can be considered environmental justice. And that term has really uh, grown in use over the last few years, but especially over the last year after George, George Floyd and a lot of the um, protests that we've seen around police brutality and just the treatment of BIPOC people. Um, you know, can you kind of explain what environmental justice is and how it's being addressed kind of on a bigger scale? Okay. So environmental justice has to do with a certain area that I'm, I'm just going to, a certain area of cities or states or the United States that are truly affected by big corporations dumping, polluting, having these problems that are, are being created by capitalism, like the drive for capitalism, because the factories are there, because water treatment plants are in certain neighborhoods. Um, dumping happens just because, like 
they feel like they can do that. So this is affecting certain, you know, areas that happen to have low socioeconomic status people there, also people of color. And so environmental justice is really trying to solve that problem. And how can we, you know, how can we find those uh, more sustainable ways to clean up our environment and to end this from happening because it's a continuum. And I mean, like if we look at, just looking at Flint, Michigan, Flint, Michigan alone with the water situation, that is affecting everybody, not just BIPOC, that's everybody. And I'm not all lives matter, okay? I'm just gonna throw that out there, everybody. But I also know that here in Dallas, we are having issues with environmental justice not being done because there are funds that are allocated for sanitation more so in the Northern sectors or in sectors that have more money where there is cleanup happening and there's not trash on the ground, but you come into our neighborhoods and our BIPOC communities and you see what's going on. You see that there's more policing that's happening instead of the proactive things that are happening. So of course, like you have trash on the ground, you feel like your, your leaders in the city do not like care about you then you're going to act accordingly. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse, that's what happened. Here in Dallas also, we have Shing we had Shingle Mountain. In South Dallas, there was a woman who had next to her home, a mountain of shingles, roofing shingles, that were just dead there and were there for years. So it's like, this happens here. We have right. more of a, yeah, we I was going to say the rest of us would get a um, a code violation for doing hey. something like a tenth of that size. I got I almost got a violation. We got a notice because there in the alleyway there were plants growing up, and I'm like, that's in the middle of the alley. Whose responsibility should that be? Businesses can yeah. get away with it though. Go figure. Right. <laughs> that's what happens. So we're you know this is what we're dealing with. And, you know, like the water treatment plant for Dallas is here in the Southern sector. There is so much more of an incident for incidents for people to have asthma here. Um, certain areas were cut off because of the way that the highways were designed when they decided, well, they, I mean like corporations and city planners and leadership within Dallas decided that they were going to, you know, set the highways up to cut people off from things. And I live in a food desert. That's why Oak Cliff Etchie Project exists is because we were living in a food desert. And even the, the couple of you know grocery stores that are in our area are not in walking distance. And it's hard for people to traverse if they do not have a vehicle. Um, and again, like that's a part of environmental justice. You cannot traverse without walking somewhere like you've got, we barely have sidewalks. And if there's a sidewalk that's being put in, we're about to wind up with gentrification. That is what's coming. Not, not they're trying to help out our community. It's the people that are coming in to invest. And I, I love California. I'm gonna go visit there soon. <laughs> but I'm gonna need these Californians to stop like raising our property taxes and all the things because like the only reason we're getting a sidewalk 
on Clarendon by Century Garden is because there are Californians coming in, buying up properties, and developers coming in too, and just throwing up buildings. Um, and it's not it's not helping our community. It's pushing us out, and that's another way that they're pushing us out too. Is yeah. that you know we have they're pushing like environmental justice. They're pushing us out by having industrial places put near our homes so that we die sooner. That's all right. So I also have ties with the Sunrise Movement here in Dallas. And the Sunrise Movement has been, we're all kind of like hand in hand. We all kind of like, you know, cheer each other on not to show up for each other because the Sunrise Movement is about environmental justice. A few of the people that I also volunteer with, they're a part of Latinx Dallas, which is a, a volunteer group. We're a part of the Sunrise Movement that walked from New Orleans all the way to Houston. And doing the interviews of showing like, here are these factories, look at the people that are here and what are the health effects that are happening? Cancer, high blood pressure, you know, anxiety, heart disease. All of these things are happening because of environmental factors that aren't gonna affect the areas that have money. Mm-hmm. until, you know, we have things like climate change really affecting people. Mm-hmm. And even then we learned that doesn't always affect people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get um, the people causing climate change are the least affected by it, essentially. And, and that's not just here in the United States, that's internationally. I mean, the U.S. and other industrialized countries are disproportionately, you know, causing emissions um, compared to our population, et cetera. Um, but it's the small island nations in the middle of the Pacific and you know the countries that are very coastal that have a lot of um, BIPOC people or just low income people that are feeling the brunt of it. You know, those are the cities that are, are getting drowned and entire nations are getting you know put underwater. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because you know we're causing poor air quality and flooding and all these things, but other people are paying the price for it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting what you said about, you know, in, in local communities, there are um, it, more, it's more likely to find, you know, a landfill or a, a plant that pollutes or water treatment, whatever, um, in specific communities with a specific population. Um, but then you get higher income or, or white you know, communities that will have their NIMBY signs, not in my backyard, and they'll start protesting and instantly things will go away. Um, it's definitely not equitable and definitely a problem. <laughs> and, and you can look at um, things like the Dakota Access Pipeline as, as a great example of that. You know, that pipeline was supposed to go through other communities, um, other parts of that of the country that basically protested it and said, no, you don't do this here. So they decided to run it through sacred native lands um, and in areas that they knew were very environmentally sensitive and would probably cause, you know, pipes to burst, et cetera, et cetera. So we're seeing this all over the country and it's really, it's really a problem. (laughs) So, So how do we, 
I guess we're not going to fix it overnight, but but how do we address this problem? Or, or I know groups like yours are, are doing great things, but um, collectively as a society, what can we be doing? We should be contacting our leaders, our state leaders, our congressmen, our senators, everybody, our congress people, because there are lots of women coming through now. <laughs> um, we we also need to be um, on the city level talking to our leaders there too, because when we're not doing that, we're, and voting is a huge part of that. When you're voting people in or not voting people in for city council, and you wind up seeing these things not changing or developers coming into these areas. We had a huge discrepancy in the voting that happened this year in the city of Dallas for city council members, where there was a there was only a 600 vote margin between one person winning. And then there was like, for another area, there were less than like 400 people that showed up to vote. It is imperative that people get out and vote and understand that there is, and I understand, I get it. There were many things that were happening for voter suppression and there still are issues of voter suppression happening. It is still part of our responsibility to get out and vote and make sure that our voices are heard, to continue to go and protest, to go and show up for these city council meetings, um, to write emails, to make phone calls. I know it seems like people feel like they're gonna bother somebody. You know what? What's bothering us, okay? Our air not. quality, <laughs> right? Our air quality, our water quality, and the, the land that we have that has that is not going to be land anymore right now dallas has the largest green space the forest like trinity forest is the largest in all the united states for cities for large cities that could disappear depending on what leadership gets in there and i got a chance to meet and speak with a gentleman who his like he helped to part of the, like conserving that he also helped us conserve like one of the trails that I take people on. But he also said that, you know, conservation has been mostly, you know, driven by white men. And we, we as the BIPOC community need to show up. And we as women, we as marginalized communities, this period, need to show up and make ourselves heard. We can also, you know, starting in your own backyard, helping out when there are cleanups. Because that water, you know, if you're in a larger city, when that trash gets pushed into your water sources, that's gonna affect everything. We have less frogs within the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is why we have had so many incidences of West Nile virus and why other cities have West Nile virus issues because frogs, being the amphibians that they are, they can't, they have permeable skin. So it seems like they're thin and wet. What's going to affect them? Pollution. How is that going to affect them? Because it all goes washed into the water sources. So we need to start doing that cleanup. And I, I was on a call once last year where somebody said, oh, Dallas' sewer system is so great because as soon as it rains, all that stuff gets pushed in, like the water gets pushed into the sewage system. And so quickly, it's like off of the street. Not completely true, depending on what areas you're in, because there's lots of footage showing that. And why people don't turn around instead of drown. It's a whole nother subject. But you can see it doesn't happen everywhere. 
So then when that water does get pushed, you, if you're walking down by the Trinity, you see where all that trash goes. And that's detrimental to the environment. And people will complain about like, oh, these mosquitoes, oh, these flies, oh, this. Guess what, folks? Our fault, you know? It's gonna get worse. Yeah, and the frogs are just continuing to die. People worry about the turtles. Sorry, I hit the button. <laughs> I got you. No, I, I, I just said I, I'm worried about the frogs where people are worried about the turtles. Yeah, yeah, biodiversity, gosh. I mean, we talked about this a couple shows ago about conservation, the importance of all species. They all play a role and um, people, if they don't value them just for the sake of their, their life is important, um, at least value them in the fact that it affects us and our health and our quality of life. So you may think that one species isn't gonna make a difference in the chain, but actually, you know, it's a ripple effect and it all goes downhill. Mm -hmm. Chris, um, we've been talking a lot about the US, but what are the trends up in Canada as far as the environmental justice movement goes? So I was just thinking as Susanna was talking is that it's Canada kind of gets uh, a bit of a pass sometimes because America is as a nation, you you guys tend to be um, just louder. You're just bigger personalities, more more outwardly patriotic than we are. You know, your patriotic movies are very different than our patriotic movies, um, but that's just just that's the way it is. So we tend to get a pass and Canada, you know, Canada gets this reputation of being so nice and we're so polite and it's like, well, yeah, but there's assholes everywhere. It's not like we're free of them. Um, we are a big melting pot as a country. However, we have our problems too. It's as I was listening to you guys, it's no different than it is here. We live at, you know, there are disproportionate populations in big cities. I personally live in a very I have my whole life a very white area. I live in Midwestern Ontario and it's farmland and it's um, tends to be conservative and that's where I've grown up and that's who runs the conservation and that's who, because that's who's here and that's, that's just the way it is and in bigger cities you get more diversity, but there are, it's, it's no different there than it is here. It's just the population is a lot smaller. We have 30, almost 37 million people here for the whole country, whereas you have 335 million. So it's smaller. Our land mass is a lot bigger. We're the second biggest country in the world. Um, but again, we have, we have our demons. We have our problems. It's just for whatever reason, we like to hide behind you guys and be like, no, but look at them. No, oh, see America, what they're also, doing. We don't, they attention to us. <laughs> we don't do a great job of, uh, proving you wrong so no and that's that that's the other thing too it's like see look they're just they're telling it for themselves like we'll just stay quiet over here and then when things do get brought up like what's been happening lately in the news of residential mass graves um being discovered and i never learned that in school that was never taught i didn't know anything about that until i was an adult and i was horrified I'm like why didn't i learn about this in history i didn't know that the last school closed in 1996 I was in the ninth grade, going into the 10th grade, I think in 1996, like it was just baffling to me and I couldn't, it's frustrating because 
it's like we're trying to bury our head under the sand and be like, no, 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 we're perfect, we're fine, we're great, we're this wonderful country, see, we're still part of England, and no, oh, yay, we're, you know, America is so much worse. They had Donald Trump. It's like, oh, we voted in a dude who was a drama teacher. So, I mean, <laughs> not much better we are. I mean, he's just, <laughs> you know? So I, I want to just put it, you know, we're nice, but, you know. Yeah, not, everybody's got. Everybody's got their shit. Every country's got yeah. their shit. Every country. We've all, we're all living in the shadow of colonialism. Yes, we are. And now it's the, in my kids, my kids are teenagers. My daughter's 15, my son's 13. And watching what my kids are learning now is in history, just in class and the conversations that they're having are so different than what I had growing up. And it just, it makes me so happy that at least it's happening now and in my lifetime that I can see this. And it's my kids generation that's going to be leading this change. And it made, you know, I'm hopeful because now, things are coming to light and you can't hide it anymore. There's no hiding this anymore. Yeah, meanwhile in Texas, we are uh, outlawing the discussion of race and you oh, know, yeah. things like that. But, um, you know, we're going to the courts and hopefully this will get resolved. Hopefully people- And that's why that. I don't work for, <laughs> that's why I do not work for a school system. Mm -hmm. Also why I decided to be an LLC instead of a nonprofit. Hmm. Interesting. Do you want to um, walk us through kind of an overview of that process? Uh, I guess the difference between the two and how, you know, the, that process works, at least in Texas. And, and maybe if you're not in Texas, that can give you kind of an idea of your next steps if you want to start something similar. So um, LLC versus the nonprofits. The nonprofits have a few more things, even though a nonprofit is still a business there are other components that you have to uh, that you have to abide by. One of them here in Texas is that you have to have a board. And there's a few other things that you have absolutely have to, you know, meet these requirements before you get anything started. As an LLC, um, well first as a sole proprietor because that's where I started out as is that it was just me going out, making sure that I, you know, was had my EIN and then, oh, which is my tax number, for those of you who don't know that. And it allowed me to just get things off the ground. Because if I had waited on the process for, that, for a nonprofit, I would have been waiting for another year to get any of these things going, to get anyone on a trail. So with the LLC, I was able to um, step into, like, it's, it's a pretty straightforward, uh, straightforward thing that you can do is, making sure that your, your paperwork is completed. There is some paperwork involved. And there's of course like a fee in order for you to become a licensed, like <laughs> liability licensed, what, whatever that LLC stands for, I should know this. But <laughs> so it is, it's really kind of cool because then I was able to like, it just gives you that extra boost of credibility to have that LLC instead of just being a full proprietor and me walking around in the woods going like, here I am, because then I also need to have insurance. Um, there are inherent risks of going outside. And if you've seen any of my videos, I tend to run into snakes. I think they just know that I'm coming out or other things that are coming out. <laughs> They're like, hey, how's it going? Um, and people are very adventurous when they're coming out with me because they feel safe enough to do so. 
Um, so I do have to remind people that, you know, erosion does happen. So please be cautious about being on the edge of these cliffs that we're hanging on or the gorges that we like get to see. But the LLC, the process took about six weeks to finally complete. It was just like making sure that I filled out the paperwork correctly. You generally can tap into talking to somebody in your community. There's a lot of um, United Way services has legal representation that you can tap into that uh, will there have resources for you to be able to talk to somebody pro bono. And if you're a person of color, there are lots of resources for people to, for you to talk to to make sure that you're doing this uh, appropriately. So I was able to get that done um, and then waiting, it was just a matter of waiting. So you can wait the full length of time that it would take if you if you fax it in, if you send in a check, or you can spend a little bit extra money and then get that a lot faster. So it's like uh, instead of like a six weeks or maybe even you know longer because of COVID being a thing that happened and, and really set back uh, the comptroller's office with you know getting things expedited. But if you were to pay that extra money, then it would it wouldn't take. You know, I think it took mine four weeks to come back to me. And that just like, once people saw LLC, they're like, oh, oh, she's real deal. Okay, cool. Um, when it, it's basically like just having paperwork and accountability for your own business. Cause that's uh, being a, like if I were just a sole provider instead of having LLC, then I would open myself up to lawsuits. So instead of this, like they, somebody could the business but they wouldn't do to sign up police and that's why I went with that and with the nonprofit, I wanted to make sure that because I at this moment in time like I'm not going to venture into nonprofit world because at any moment that could also be taken away from me and there's more of a chance for somebody to want to change my mission um, and I'm working with mutual uh, mutual aid groups that can also work under me because they have funds or we're able to, like, if I get a vendor status with Dallas Independent School District or any other school district, then I can also utilize some of their people as, like, if they do gardens, community gardens. And many of the schools are wanting gardens in their school, like, on their, you know, on their property so that kids can watch things grow, so they're seeing things in action. And these are community members anyway that we can, you know, this, they can come in under me as an independent contractor and we could still be working in the community, but also getting paid to do so. Um, because really like, yes, we do a lot of volunteer work within our community and I do a lot of volunteer work, but I also need to make sure that my income is sustainable. So that's why I do charge a fee. That's why I do, you know, work with other organizations to make sure that I'm getting paid. And I'm not like, it's always funny when I'm working with new brand partners, because I always tell them like, just to let you know, I'm not trying to be famous. The only thing I really want to do is make sure I have an income and I can afford insurance for myself. You know, the adult thing. Yeah, I mean, everybody um, should be value or th their time is valuable. So the fact that you're doing this, a lot of people like asking people to, you know, head big projects up, volunteer, et cetera, which is great. And, and I definitely do a lot of that, but there comes a point where you have to be like, look, this is my full-time gig. And um, 
for folks who are, uh, you know, thinking about starting a similar organization or um, have, have thought, you know, I think we need something like this in our community. Um, and you don't have to, to start as a business or a nonprofit, you know, you can just kind of start a group. You know, I, that's what I did. I, I made a Facebook group and, you know, started having monthly meetings and um, you can do something like that. Just just kind of figure out what your community needs. There's no one size fits all and, and kind of go from there. What are your strengths and who do you know, et cetera. So, um, but yeah, this is, I think this is a great uh, project that you've been working on, great journey. And, and I'm really grateful that you're sharing this with us. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about or that you want to touch on real quick before we, we move on? Yeah, it's uh, just making sure that like, and this is with any small business too, there are, there are people all across the U.S. that potentially could see this or across the world that could see this, right? Um, I think the biggest thing is understanding like how you can also help out with supporting local that's not your local and still like, you know, kind of kind of being like, all right, I'm going to keep learning. Many of us have our social media accounts. Um, you know, I also do traveling. So I had a group that contacted me out of Denver and I'm going to head to Denver in October because it was a request. And I said, like, I will make a point to be out there. If you get 10 people, only 10, like at least 10 people to want to do a hike, I'll come out there. The other thing that I also, also can offer is, you know, mentorship for people so that if they want to learn, like, learn from me and learn some of the things that I do, they can do that. But also just like getting on and engaging in our social medias or comment, like an engagement is as simple as liking, commenting, sharing, and saving because it helps the algorithm to continue to build that up. Because many of these brands, many companies, there are corporations that could be helping to like sponsor or give money to organizations to more of a mind, they want to see the engagement. So in order to help out with that, we need followers. We need, you know, that that engagement piece of liking things and you know being active on social media. And if people are already doing that, help out, like jump on. Um, and you know, if you want to also join excursions, because I do excursions not just for kids with bikes, I do them for adults. I'm headed this weekend. I'm leaving tomorrow evening to head back to South New Mexico because that is one of that's my place a place of peace, and it's also a place where I've already taken two groups. And every time I go, we see something new. Every experience is a little different. Um, so I want people to understand, like, you want to meet you kind of nature. You want to see some of the stuff because it's not just about getting out on a trail. It's about connecting and seeing the small details where you wouldn't notice it if you're just walking on a trail to get some miles in and to get exercise. I'm going to help you to see the things that you haven't been seeing. And you know, to find out what's around you because that's what people miss. And if you miss that, you're also probably missing that within your own community, within yourself or anyone else around you. So that's why this is really important and why I want to make sure that like help facilitate that for others. That's awesome. What um, resources would you share with our listener if they want to learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the outdoors? That can be websites, you know, videos, social media accounts, et cetera. All right. So 
checking out, well, check out my nature, just saying. Um, <laughs> I write a lot about different things, but also unlikely hikers. There are tons of Black, Black Girls Hike is another organization. They put a lot of information out there. Uh, checking out, um, even the American Camp Association, I was on a podcast with a few people about diversity and equity. REI has been really good about putting things out there as well. National parks are always putting out information. So fair resource of mine just personally, because um, if you haven't seen some of my social media, many of my followers laugh whenever I knock over people's stacked rocks. And I also put out information about why that's not okay to be stacking rocks. Um, but the national parks was the one that taught me about all of that too. And even in your local, uh, your state or your, your county, generally has their own websites that they go through. So like for us here in Texas, Texas Parks and Wildlife has a lot of really cool information. Um, Green Dallas for me is another one. They are they're a, a branch of the Dallas city, um, of the city of Dallas that helps to, you know, put out things as well, including having free, um, free events where there are, you know, free events where we're talking about nature, discussing, you know, what's around you. I was on one of their, I was on one of their, um, one of their workshops as well. And your libraries, local libraries, everybody, huge resource. Please make sure you utilize them. So local libraries are, um, they also have, and, and since COVID has been happening, have been using, um, you know, rooms to have these workshops as well. So in other words, there's no shortage of resources for folks to get out there. And yeah, yeah and if you're not in the Dallas area, um, I will second, REI is a great organization, not just as a store, but um, I took a few of their camping classes and, you know, outdoors survival and things like that. And it was very helpful and, um, you know, it can be intimidating when you first start. Um, so that's a great organization. They also do guided hikes, things like that. So if you're if you're looking to start out or you're not sure, you know, um, they have a lot of good initiatives. So, um, well, Chris, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask or? I miss camp. <laughs> Same. I miss camp and uh, my kids miss camp because they've been going to since they were little. And I just think camp is such, I was one of those kids that needed a sponsorship. So through my, my church, I was, me and my sister were able to go to camp and it was the best thing ever because it, it, when you care about where you are, you care about what happens to it. So I just became, you know, a lifelong hippie because I got introduced to camp as a kid and, and the camp cared too. So we learned a lot, so much and my kids now love it and we've been missing it. So we're hoping, and camp got canceled this year for us. So we were really hopeful. We even signed up and then got the email. So we were all bummed, but hopefully next year they'll get to go. My daughter will be old enough next year to be a leader in training. So really hopeful that she'll be able to do that. Um, I was a leader in training at that camp too. So, and so was my sister, um, but sponsorships are really great for kids to be able to go camp. Day camps are great. Um, yeah, because sometimes people, a lot of people are scared of nature. They think it's gross and icky and like things are going to bite them. Things do bite, but it's not that bad. 
Um, but I would like to know more about uh, foraging. We're trying to grow a tea garden outside in our backyard. So I know I have lots of edible things around me. So that's one of the things that I'm going to be putting on my list of things to learn about is more yeah. foraging where we are. Yeah. So um, always check your own local stuff. Um, there is a woman who she's been getting a lot of attention. It's a black forager. And she's on yes. Oh, I know who that. Yes. yes. Yeah, I know her. So, oh, she's adorable. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's great. Yeah. Uh, my only feedback would be like, please always make sure you tell people where you are. That's it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are times that I'm like, no, that would not that would not go here. Like, um, <laughs> or that's not in this region. Like, yeah. I'm always like, I, I try to make sure I tell people like, if something is from all over North America, because there's a specific parsnip that's um, out in the Northeast right now. That is a cousin of something that is edible, but is not edible. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of great social media influencers that share, you know, food and gardening stuff, I follow this account on Instagram called Gardening with Goo. I don't know if you guys have seen him, but yeah. he is this big guy, just like a big teddy bear, and he posts the funniest pictures of his garden, and he has amazing, like, you know, leaves that are like as big as your arm and just, it's just feel good content. And he's, you know, you look at him and you think he does not look like he would have a garden and he is all about his garden and he has the best photos and comments and everything. So check that out if you're, if you're so inclined. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I guess this is a good time to, to talk about our green life hacks. I think we've already kind of given a couple of those in the course of the conversation, but um, Susana, do you have a green life hack that you'd share with our listeners? Um, so a green life hack for me would be always make sure that you have, um, like if you're, if you're like a person like myself going out in the nature, or if you're even just starting out, to make sure that you have, um, have your backpack ready for certain situations. I always have a striker on me. And the life hack that people don't realize that is like one of the best is to be able to learn how to like to start a fire because that is your number one thing besides oxygen that you need. The next step is shelter. And you have to have that within three hours. And of course, fire is a huge one. But our Eastern red cedar trees, which are a cousin of the juniper, they are in the juniper family, have this bark that like peels off, right? And so... You can use that if you don't have anything else to be able to start a fire, like cotton ball or steel wool or the things that people would have learned how to use if they got that resource, right? That bark is very flammable and you can get it to where like, if you're just pulling up and being lazy and trying to like get the fire started, you can roll it in your hand and get it to where it looks like a hairball, like what you pulled out of the drain. And that stuff, will catch if you have your striker, just one little spark. Um, but that's one of my green life hacks that I love to do. And then my other one for just like in general here, um, for in my home, I am a huge proponent of air conditioning because you know, we're in Texas and I don't care what ERCOT says and they're probably gonna haunt, like hunt me down after I say this, but there's a life hack for you that's a green one that's gonna keep you also budget-wise and also making sure that you stay cool because nobody likes to be uncomfortable when they're sleeping. During the day, you can bump up that AC where you need to have it, like up higher 
if you're not in your home, um, it's still gonna be okay. Almost 80 degrees, it's still way cooler than you're gonna be outside. And then you can bump that down a little bit lower whenever you're home. So making sure that you do that because it is, it is more energy efficient for you to do it. And it keeps your home at a decent temperature because when you walk in from outside, you're still gonna be cooler and you're gonna feel it. Um, and then wait until later on in the evening to turn it down a bit because that sun is still gonna be being through. And it doesn't matter if you have energy efficient windows or grid insulation, your home is still going to wind up being like a little bit warmer. So please like, I always wait and bump it down. And then I've, I've learned that because I do that, I don't have to bump it down so low anymore. I can also sleep in like 74 degrees and be okay. Uh, and it saves me some money on my energy bill. <laughs> See, I'm one of those freaks who um, I keep it at 78 as my like baseline. Like that's my comfortable. <laughs> so when I'm not at home, it's like 84 or something. Um, but I'm also very cold intolerant. So yeah, moving to Ireland should be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and you had a lot um, of plants too. Well, so. I love the, I love, yeah, and I have a lot of plants. I love mm -hmm. the life half guy about fire though, because I have been getting into camping more the last couple years and trying to improve my fire, fire starting skills and it is very challenging. So um, definitely a good skill to have though, if, if you're in a pinch. Um, yeah. Chris, cotton what balls. about you? I'm sorry, just a cotton balls, Cheetos, Pencil shavings and um, tampons. Oh, those are all really great things for us. Dryer lint. So that's dryer lint too. Yeah, dryer lint sometimes. Chris, what um, you got for us? I think Doritos are flammable too. Are they not? They are, They bit. don't burn as well no? as Cheetos. Okay. Yeah, they do. I've tried it. I yeah. also tried Takis. So if you're not familiar with Takis, Chris. I do know what talkies are. I just never had them. Okay. Yay! <laughs> yeah. They're not as like, they don't burn as well. Okay. Cheetos. Oh, my, my poor dog will be. The things we put in our body. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway, okay. Uh, so my green life hack um, is hobbies, but particularly slow hobbies. So for me, it's um, like handcrafts. So I love to knit and I love to crochet. So it's sort of just the idea of just slowing down and focusing and paying attention to what you're doing. Um, and it's, it's a very minimal um, hobby to, unless, you know, I look over to my right and I have bookcases full of yarn. Um, but it can be very minimal and it can be very um, Spartan if you want it to be. And you don't have to go big or anything like that. And I, yeah, I knit, I can, I crochet. I want to learn how to cross stitch, not embroider because I tried that and it was very anger inducing. Um, but yeah, just taking time to slow down, walking also, that's a slow hobby. Um, but yeah, just something that slows you down, needs very little um, in the way of equipment or, or accoutrement. Um, but yeah, just slow down. I think if anything, last this last like year and a half that we're coming up on to has just taught us to chill out, just slow down a little bit. You don't have to be so fast paced and there's, you know, rest is good and quiet is good and calm is good. I love that. Good reminder for all of us. Um, well, my green life hack is uh, it's plastic free July. So I know it's time of COVID to um, 
minimize a lot of the disposable stuff we're using, but I wanna challenge folks to start thinking about ways to reduce their plastic again. Um, so simple things like not using plastic water bottles, using a reusable one and refilling it. Um, not using, you know, straws and takeaway uh, containers if you can help it, um, plastic flatware, things like that. So just start small, try to think of one or two things you can replace. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll find that it's not as hard as you, as you think it is. And it saves you money. You're not having to constantly rebuy things. And it obviously reduces the amount of trash you make. So that's my green life hack. Um, well, Susanna, thank you again for being on the show and, and talking to us about this important topic. Where can we find you and or Chicana in Nature online? All right, so on all the social medias, uh, on Facebook and Instagram, at, it's at Chicana Nature. Just, that's all it is. Um, and also when you Google me, it's the first thing that pops up is my website, chicanainnature.com. And on Twitter, it's Chicana in. And then I do have, an, I do have TikTok, but I'm not as like active because I like to, I love Instagram. It's been a really big go-to for me. So just check it out. <laughs> I um, have not ventured into TikTok world. I don't, I just don't have time. <laughs> Maybe one day. I'm too old. I don't, I don't, I'm too old. Yeah. I said that about Instagram though. I'm on Instagram now. So yeah. I like Instagram. I'm too old. My daughter's, she doesn't have a TikTok account, but she loves it. I'm like, oh, I'm too old. I don't get it. I'm well, Chris, where can we find you? Oh, oh yeah. sorry. Pardon, Susanna, what'd you say? I said I'm 40. So I mean like. I'll uh, be 40 in November. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find me here at Sustainably. Um, Marginally Geeky. We just did a podcast two weeks ago. Last week and a half. I don't know what day it is. Um, and we were reading Jen's pick for the month, which is the greatest love story ever told, which is a super cute book. Um, we're now reading Shadow and Bone, which was my pick. And it's pretty good so far um and then epically geeky we're doing an episode this week and you can find me on instagram at rose and hummingbird and you can find me um here on sustainably geeky occasionally on epically geeky and usually on marginally geeky <laughs> epically geeky is our parent show so um if you haven't checked any of those shows out please do um, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Het's Gonna Be Me. And of course, you can find the show um, on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, and if you haven't subscribed, please go ahead and do that. Give us a five-star rating, um, leave us a review, et cetera, et cetera. It really helps get the word out and get, gets us up there for other people to hear. Um, and of course, share it on your social media and with anyone you think might enjoy it. Um, and then you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sustainably Geeky. Thank you all for listening and have a great night. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.